This is the Dover Download Podcast. My name is Christopher Parker, and for the past 25 years, I've had the pleasure of working with, learning from, and talking to a variety of volunteer, staff, and community members. This podcast explores conversations, activities, and a variety of policies and programs which exist here in Dover to improve the community in one way or another. Over the past 20 to 25 years, Dover has really changed, and a lot of it, I think, is for the good. And that change has been both in the form of development we've seen and the amount of development we've seen. A lot of that development has occurred in the Central Business District, and at the heart of that is the Kachiko Mill Buildings. Today, we're going to meet with Eric Chimberg, owner of Chimberg Properties, Chimberg Management, who has owned the mills for, I'm thinking, 15 years now, Eric, and really has been the spur of why those mills have been vibrant. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you and I, I think, met about 20 years ago. I remember sitting at a conference in Laconia and you getting up and speaking and saying, one of the best projects I've been doing is in Dover because they get the entitlement process. And I went up to you after and I said, I wasn't involved with that, but that's great to hear. (laughs) And then we served on a panel in Portsmouth a few years ago, I remember. Yep. Tell the listener what they need to know about Eric Chimberg. Well, I'm a New Hampshire local, pretty much. I grew up in Durham. I went to UNH. I got a degree in uh, civil engineering, did a couple years of project management for commercial construction, and then started building houses in 1987. Since then, we've built you know, hundreds of homes, done residential real estate development, in conservation developments, cluster developments all over New Hampshire, uh, parts of Maine and Massachusetts. In 1996, I got into my first mill redevelopment in Portsmouth, and I was sort of following Joe Sautel, who owned a lot of the mills around here. I thought of him as kind of a mentor, and he sold me a mill on Islington Street, and I got into that project a little bit nervous, quite scared, and knowing a lot of things had to go right. And uh, in the process, learned that you can do a lot of things right, make a lot of good decisions, but there are several things you don't control. And when those things go against you, it's bad. And when they go with you, it can be good. But that was the beginning of that. And then since then, we've done lots of millery developments throughout Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and now in Vermont. I know that people know that we do a lot of adaptive reuse of mills. We also build a lot of really nice single-family homes. We've built some new apartment multifamily things, but mostly have converted mills into housing and restaurants and offices. And Dover has been a major hub of that. One of the projects that, as I I listen to you talk about the types of building you do, I guess it's a hybrid, is the old courthouse, which is both an adaptive reuse, but then you're adding, or you've added really at this point, a whole building onto it. What was that project like for you? Well, it's it's interesting because we love these historic buildings. And when you have a beautiful building like the, the courthouse in Dover, the economics don't work with that on its own. The building is, believe it or not, it's too small to, we could only get maybe 14 or 15 apartments in the building itself. So it, that doesn't support all of the engineering, entitlement, design, everything you need to do in order to create that. So Jeff Spitzer, who's worked with me for 20-some-odd years, Mm -hmm. came up with this concept, and we started it in Rochester, and now we're doing it in Dover, which is when the building's historic and too small, work with the municipality and add a new building attached to it. That allows you to maintain the facade and keep the historic integrity of this beautiful structure and get the economies of scale 
to the point where it can be a feasible project. One of the things that I loved about that project was you came to me and you said, I want to save this building, but here's what I need. And you were very clear. We need a 79E deal. And this is the, this is what I can do. This is what I need the city to do. I think we negotiated that in like 20 minutes because we were both clear. And one of the things that I've said before to the, the council the 79E program, which is a community revitalization tax credit program, which allows a property owner to make reinvestments, and the city essentially holds the tax value, assessed value, at a certain level to allow you to absorb some of those costs into your pro forma. In this case, we had to kind of reinvent that process here in Dover because we had a we had it in place, but it was not as clear cut. That project, in my mind, is exactly what that program should be for in that you kept an existing building and said, in order to make this work and to create a viable contributor to downtown, this is what we need to do. And then we said, okay, on top of that, can we add some attainable housing? And you said, sure, this is what I need to make that work. And the council said, great, let's sign off on it. And we all went to town. Well, the beauty of working with you and any thoughtful planner who's really about making good development happen rather than finding ways to say stop no. it or say no. And we've had that relationship in Dover with you for many years now. And I think we, we trust each other yeah. and we know that like, look, we, we showed you our numbers. We can't right. do this. We can't put millions and millions into this project and the very next year start paying the taxes on that assessment because it will just, it will kill the project. So we negotiated with Chris and the city, a runway, a few years of that tax bill staying low. The city doesn't lose anything. That's something we have to tell people. Whatever it was valued at when we bought it, we keep paying taxes at that value until this uh, time lapse goes by. And your request that we do, I like the word attainable housing. We have several, 20% of the units, I believe, are reasonably affordable or more uh, workforce uh, rents. But in order to make that happen, we needed flexibility on where the units were in the building. And can we move the unit from here to there if someone comes who meets the income requirement, but there isn't a unit available? And that flexibility and teamwork between a developer and a planning department is instrumental to creating good development. I think that there's a misconception that developers are Scrooge McDuck diving into their <laughs> their pools of gold coin and that you just willy-nilly buy a piece of property and snap your fingers, the building's built, and you're you're got another revenue stream. My sense is that there might be some of those out there. There might be these mega developers that are probably not in New Hampshire uh, that, that exist like that. But you and and the majority of who's actually moving the needle here in, in New Hampshire, it's much more close to the vest. That your performers are much more, how do we get this project off the ground and pencil out? Absolutely. And, you know, we've talked about the complexity of navigating a regulatory process where, again, thoughtful planning people make that a little easier but even when you get through a process with the municipality, you're still dealing with the state department of environmental services. There's fish and game. There's architectural and historic. Right. There's multiple, and it's almost a labyrinth, layers of you know regulatory approvals that you need. This all costs money with engineers and attorneys. And then, of course, when you get into the actual construction, you know the building codes change every year. They get more and more onerous and more and more expensive. And you know, we've talked a lot with communities who are trying to encourage good development about 
how they need to help because I show a graph that's quite steep of what regulatory and construction costs are doing going up mm -hmm. and incomes are going up at a lower pitch. And that gap between those two slopes is where you need to roll up your sleeves and work together to find incentives or tax credits or whatever way you can to make this work. Currently now, of course, we're really struggling with interest rates being high. Construction costs post-COVID, unfortunately, have not come down. I don't understand it, mm -hmm. but it's they're stubbornly resisting coming down. And there's just enough work for everybody in the business, in the trades, that you know, the, the trades, the, the, the plumber that was charging us X before COVID is charging us 2X now, and we can't get a plumber to get back down to 1.5X. And good for them. That's the market. Right. And we have to try to navigate that. I remember uh, you and I were on a panel in Newmarket a few years ago, and I said it costs $180 a square foot. And you said, I wish. Yeah. And that I've, I've since looked at it. And, and right now, we're looking at, for a single family home, about 250 a square foot. That's about right. Yeah. And then what I see for adaptive reuse is closer to three and a quarter because you have the fire stoppage alone. Yep. It just adds an enormous amount. And that's a challenge because it's a 2,000 square foot house using that math. The construction costs, what's two times 250? That's $500,000. Right. And you got to buy the land. Now you got to buy the land and you got to put in roads and get utilities and get Eversource to give you transformers and, you know, work with, like I said, the, the uh, DES and AOT and all of these steps. So we don't have any land in our regional portfolio that we have less than $200,000 into the piece of land that we're putting the house on. So therefore, that's a $700,000 house now, right? that 2,000 square foot house. I think that's a shame, but it's also the reality. But, and it's why when we speak to people in at every step of the sort of regulatory path, we're saying, look, it, it's death by a thousand cuts. We need, we need DES to cut us a little slack over here. If if this rule was good enough, you know, last year, why do we have a new rule that costs twice as much for a very minimal gain in protecting, say, the environment? And um, there's a lot of a lot of well-meaning folks that are in their trenches doing their part of the regulatory job that don't see the effect that all of those little things have on creating housing. If you could snap your finger, what would be the one change you would make to help with that? Well, frankly, a lot of the stuff that Dover has done on the, the municipal entitlement process, which is to, I think parking now is pretty much the developer says, I think that I can make this project work with this much parking. And you guys are like, okay, if it's not insane, you'll lose. You it. can't lease it because you don't have enough parking. You're going to be in the one. So there's up. parking, there's dimensional requirements, setbacks, letting buildings be taller. That's all stuff that municipalities can do with more thoughtful zoning and getting rid of the old two acre zoning and like you've got to have a two, you know, two acres per house. You know, we're trying to do some affordable stuff in uh, Kingston, New Hampshire right now. And there's just new rules that DES has created that makes a, a big community septic system almost impossible. And so we have a site that we could put, you know, 70 apartments on and we think that soils are sufficient and our engineers think so, but it's just very difficult to do because of rules that well-meaning people create that just make it harder. Is it a site-by-site -site conversation or is there a sweet spot in unit count that you try to shoot for? Meaning the, co the land cost is going to be different at each site. Yeah. So does that drive the, the density you need or is there a, you know from experience that if I can get X amount of units, I can make almost any piece work? 
I think there is a number in there somewhere. I, I haven't thought of it that way, but my guess is it's around 50 units. I mean, for to do really multi-unit and infill stuff where you're doing multiple floors with elevators, multiple sets of stairs, all the fire sprinkler, everything you have to do. You know, the two recent ones that we've done, the Dover Courthouse and the uh, Scenic Salinger uh, project in Rochester, which was similar in that we saved these two small historic buildings and created space behind them. Both of those projects are in the 50 to 60 unit range. Okay. When we're doing a larger mill conversion, and when we did Kachiko with you many years yeah. ago, that was, you know, we used three floors and created, I think, 140 or 50. 40, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, am I right in that you're vertically integrated and in that you do your own construction management, you have your own rental folks, you do your financing, maybe not, you're not your own institution, but you, you're trying to really bring as much of it under your own control as possible. Yeah, our, I think our logo says develop build and manage. So we have a team that you've worked with a lot yeah. that's on the forefront of getting regulatory approvals, assessing viability of sites mm -hmm. doing pro formas. You know, we look at a lot of sites that we just pass on. Mm -hmm. um, that's our sort of development team. And then we have an in-house construction team where we built a lot of single family homes and we build out the mill conversions and the Dover courthouse projects. Then we have the management company that once we complete the project, my investors are very Patient investors, they all like the transformative nature of the adaptive reuse stuff we do in downtowns, and they like staying in the deals, so we don't, like, flip them. We, gotcha. When we're done, we put our name on the building, we lease it up with tenants, and then uh, we hold it for the long term. From a, a rental side, do you see a lot of turnover, or do you see a lot of continued renters? Do, do, in other words, do, I know I've seen both sides of it, where some say millennials and Gen Z want like nine months and then they want to move. But then you have the empty nesters who say, can I sign an 18 month lease? Yeah. Well, we don't do any leases less than a year. It's just too much of a hassle. Mm -hmm. And I believe there's an industry standard turnover rate in apartments of close to 40% of the units turnover every year. How long? We're fortunate ours is much lower than that. We have a, the Exeter Mill, for example, our demographic there is older. I think our turnover is in the 15 to 17%. And I think in our other projects, we like to think because the, the locations are good. They're downtown. Yeah. They're on rivers, brick walls and the big windows and the high ceilings. That's all attractive. So we generally run probably 25 to 28%. So it does mean that, you know, the hundreds of units we have, a quarter of them are turning over every year. Do you get much flippers? In other words, someone that's in a summer's worth that sees that you're doing the courthouse and says, hey, can I? Yep. And we have a great program. If you want to transfer within one of our properties, we can get you out of the lease. and Because you're freeing up space. Yeah. Right. Which you'll fill. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, the demand, as you know, the sh there is an acute housing shortage. The demand is very high. So we've had effectively zero vacancy rates for, for years, which is awesome. I don't know many people around here, but some people, you know, take advantage of that in a way that I don't agree with and that they'll, they have sort of algorithms that say, look, we'll get more gross revenue if we have 5% empty because we just should charge more and more and more to discourage enough people. Mm -hmm. I just don't do that math. We, we like getting people in our buildings and hopefully making them feel really satisfied and happy living there. And then it's a lot easier for us to do a gentle renewal increase than it is to have an empty apartment. Well, well I remember Brent who worked for you telling me yeah. years ago that the goal was to have a happy tenant so that you weren't constantly having to clean and re-advertise and yeah. all of that, that it's better to find that sweet spot. Right. And 
make tweaks here and there than massive adjustments. Yeah. And there were opportunities, you know, people were doing this during COVID and everything else. And we're like, guys, and we just talked, you know, we would have a young new property manager saying, hey, the market for this apartment now, if it were vacant, would be $2,000 a month. And we had a loyal person who had been there for three years paying $1,500 a month. And fortunately, again, my investors aren't saying, hey, you know what, you should bump that to 2000 We were always like, you know what, we'll increase the rent sort of commensurate with inflation. So if they were paying 1500 we would say, okay, let's make it 1560 even though the market might have been 2000 And I think that that just pays dividends. It, your clients are happier and just feels better. How far out do you book projects? Like we're, we're at the beginning of 2024 now. Are you thinking, okay, my team has got enough projects lined up to get me through this year and next, and I need to start thinking about 2026? Or is it much of a, as a shorter period? It's about the first one you said. We've got a couple of projects in the pipeline right now that we are spending all the design money on, on the site and civil, on the architectural, and we're doing pro formas that don't work yet. Yeah. So we're investing in getting them approved and we have to see either construction costs or interest rates soften a little bit before we can pull the trigger. But we have two projects kind of ready to pull the trigger. One's in Maine and one's in Western New Hampshire. And um, we're hoping that one of those will pan out. You know, again, I, all the tools in the toolbox, Maine is, state of Maine right now is considering amending their state historic tax credit. It hasn't been changed. It's been fixed, a fixed amount for 30 years. And, and there's all these projects in Maine that even with that benefit of the tax credit, can't work. Right. So there's a lobbying effort of going that they're trying to double that amount. If that happens, we'll have a big project in Lewiston that goes from infeasible to feasible because we still have to raise a lot of money and you have to have these investors think they're going to make six to 8% on their money. And right now we can't make a pro forma that shows that. Is there a project that sticks out to you that you've gone, hmm, I wish we had done X differently. I think it could have been a better project. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I should have something ready to say to that, but uh, I can't think of it right now. <laughs> Is there a project that you can think, why did we do that? I can't believe I was convinced that that was a good project. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of those. I I had a real bad one, you know, 20 years ago that took a lot of digging out. And then there's been several that were kind of passion projects that you thought you might build it for a little less. And you thought you might get rents a little better and it breaks even and bumps along. Yeah. So we have a few like that. And then there are others that it surprised you and uh, you did a little better. So that compensates for the bump, bump alongs. Is there a dream project for you? You know, if, if uh, the old prison at the, you know, that was a Sawtell yeah, wanted to do that, Sautel. right? Yeah. If that sort of, pro is there a project like that that you, you're like, I don't care what the cost is. I'll figure that one out. Well, that would be amazing. Unfortunately, there's no way yeah. on a project like that you can't care about the cost. I've looked at that a few times over the years and just thought, wow, it'd be amazing. But it's literally 10-foot cells with reinforced concrete. It's not like an, a micro units. Yeah, <laughs> those are really <laughs> micro units. Um, but, you know, this one, we're, we're looking at doing a big project in Lewis, Maine right now, which would be 350 apartments um, and a beautiful mill along the canals and the river in town. And that's the one that we've designed and is not yet feasible. What sort of build-out timeline would you, if it became feasible, is that a three-year build-out, a two-year build-out? We would hope it would be a two-year build-out. Actually, you're more like three, because we'd have to do it in two phases, maybe 180 units each, and each phase might take 18 months. So yeah. We're finishing a mill in Franklin right now that's 150 apartments, and that's been kind of an 18-month build 
and um, that's we're leasing that now. I, I've been to that one. That one's an interesting project because it really can be a catalyst for so much more. It can be like the mill here, yeah. where it it's a hub of mixed use commercial and the residential activity. And you've got that river that they're trying to activate in the middle of it. There was a brewery that was going in. We've there. already got them in there, yeah. No? So, it, it, you know, that could be really part of a transfer, a continuing transformation of downtown Franklin. Yeah. And, you know, when I was telling you about my first mill project in 1996, I knew enough even then to note that there were four things going in that I didn't really know or control. One is, you know, what what's your entitlement risk? How much will it mm-hmm. cost to get your approvals? What's the construction cost? I didn't really know enough then to know what it might be. What's going to be your interest rate when you finish it? Because it gets interest only during construction. Then you get an interest rate for your permanent financing. And then what what are the rents going to be? And will people rent them? So we've gotten pretty good at the first three. Like, you know, we we can figure out our entitlement costs, our construction costs, and um, we kind of know the interest rates going in. But if you build it, will they come? Yeah. That's the one you don't really know. And we're in Franklin right now, opening the doors of 150 apartments. And, you know, we've leased uh, 30 of them over several weeks, which is promising. When we did stuff in the Seacoast, we'd rent them all in like a month. Yeah. So it'll be interesting, but I'm hopeful. I I was talking with Matt on your team the other day, and I said I was going to go to the uh, open house at the courthouse, mainly because I'd like to downsize. My wife, I think, disagrees with that theory. Um, So it... It's not really up to me, but we'll go and uh, I want her to see what it could be like because that to me is an ideal sort of scenario. Yeah. Uh, but he said, we might want to get in there quick because the interest has been outrageous on that. Building. We just started that maybe three weeks ago and I think we've got half of them leased. Yeah, that's Which is, you know, that's sort of what we've been, been accustomed to in the in the Seacoast region just because the demand is super high. And, you know, the, the, the rents in Franklin you know, they're lower than Seacoast, but I think that incomes in the Seacoast are right. quite a bit higher than that. So it, it, I think Mental. it's going to be leasing more slowly, but I think it will lease. So what's on the horizon? What You've got these projects, the Western New Hampshire and the, the Lewiston project. Where do you see yourself in five years? Where do you want to be developing? Well, it's interesting. We in have a, we've hired a bunch of I've got great people, including, you know, there's senior guys that, you know, like Brent and Matt and Paul. And and we've been hiring a younger tranche of them. These, these kids are hungry. Yeah. So they're like, hey, I just saw a mill in Pittsfield, Mass. And there's one in Virginia, you know. I'm like, so I don't think we're ready to do that yet. Um, but we are so, I'm so enthralled by the history and the architecture of these mills. You know, we kind of go where they are. We bought one in Bennington, Vermont, and, you know, that's three hours, and that's a little bit of a challenge, but it's not, it's not insurmountable. Yeah. We're very interested in doing the stuff that I think is a kind of cool development. You, you know, there's a, there's a total place for people that build, you know, garden-style apartments that are less expensive to do than the mills, and to me, they're less exciting, but there's a great place for those, and there's developers that fill that niche. We, we're not that developer. Yeah. You know, we're like the, the Sanborn Seminary in Kingston. We've had it, we've owned it now for two or three years, and we, that's the one, the building's too small, so we're trying to add buildings, yeah. but we, there's no city sewer, so we've been trying to figure out this septic loading thing, and uh, that would be an awesome thing to save that seminary, yeah. and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful structure like these other historic structures, so... You know, the 
people, I think that's the, the biggest obstacle that people don't realize in this state is the prevalence of water sewer. Sure, 80% of Dover has water sewer, but we are not representative of the state as a whole. That If you do not have those utilities, density is very hard to to provide. Very much so. And again, I, and I'm not trying to diss DES. I know that, that all their rules have a reason and they're well-meaning, but the community septic systems that w- were feasible a few years ago are becoming really hard to make work. That's a challenge because if you want to, you know, have multi-units in areas where there isn't sewer. And by the way, sewer, municipal sewer systems are what? hundreds of million dollars, right. whatever they are. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to pop up in towns that don't already have them. So I was on a, uh, a conversation recently about housing, and I was noting that while I think it's great that Dover has adopted a policy that duplexes are essentially allowed everywhere, and we are very pro-accessory dwelling unit, in order to move the needle statewide on the 30,000 units that we are short as a state, we need multifamily in one form or another. And that means that communities, unlike us, that have said, yeah, we we can't put in water sewer. I think part of the reason they say that is because they want to avoid density and they want to avoid residents, which puts more pressure on places like us, where I feel that the, the city council, the planning board, and the staff here are all of the mindset of the more the merrier. We want people to move here. We want people to be engaged in our community and shop in our stores and support the restaurants that are in your mills and to really create the vibrant community that we are. Well, and you guys are doing a great job of it because there's a lot of units being built here now, and that waterfront project's amazing. And um, I think that uh, I think hats off to you guys in Dover because. It's working. Well, I think it's working in part because people like you took a chance on the, the early years and said, we want to we wanna buy this and make it work. I remember when you came and said, I want to take the, uh, all the 300,000 square foot office space and make a mixed use mill as opposed to a single use mill. And it, that was supposed to be a three phase build out, I think. And it was like a one and a half phase because the interest, yeah. you spotted it, people were there and I, I think it's been a great outgrowth, and I appreciate all the effort you've put into developing here where it's feasible. Well, it's certainly a pleasure working in this town, so it's uh, it's mutual. Good. I appreciate that. Anything you want to end on? Anything the listeners should know about you or, or your firm that uh, you want to make sure gets across? Oh, I guess I think the people that know me and, you know, my wife who does all our marketing, my brother works with us, I grew up in Durham, we just try to embody, like, a good business ethos. And uh, I always say to our people, whether it's the homeowner customer that you're building for and they're disappointed in their something or the tenant who, you know, had a little bit of a mishap and clearly in the lease, we're fine or in the contract, we're fine. We don't have to do anything. I always say it's easier to say yes, as long as the customer isn't trying to take advantage of you. If they're just a nice person, you know, work with people. And they're going to be your best lead for your next tenant. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's something I feel is really important to me. And as a company has grown and we've gotten more younger people, sometimes I have to just remember to tell people that the story that worked for us, like, hey, you know what? We like to say yes. And we like to treat people well. And um, I would like to think that that's what most people think of Chinberg when they hear about us. So I think that's spot on. And as we sit here, I'm also thinking when I think of Eric Timber, I'm going to think of the only person I've ever seen in the past 10 years that has a cell phone with a keyboard. 
<laughs> I think I have the nation's last Blackberry. It's I can't let it go. <laughs> well, on the note of letting it go, I appreciate you coming in and it's been a great conversation and I look forward to continuing to work with you and seeing what we can develop together. Likewise, Chris. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Dover has a wealth of history in its over 400 years of existence. Coming up, Mike Gillis is going to share some of that history with us. On February 14, 1910, Dover's Marilla Ricker announced her candidacy for governor of New Hampshire. She said she would stump in every city and town in the state. Who was Marilla Ricker? Marilla Ricker was a prominent figure in the women's rights movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Born in New Hampshire in 1841, Ricker was a passionate advocate for women's suffrage and equal rights throughout her life. Despite facing opposition from many quarters, she persisted in her efforts to empower women and fight for their rights, eventually becoming one of the most influential women's rights activists of her time. Marilla Ricker was born into a family of modest means, but her parents instilled in her a strong work ethic and a commitment to social justice. As a young woman, she received a solid education, attending schools in New Hampshire and later in Massachusetts. Shortly after she finished college, she married John Ricker, a wealthy farmer from Dover. When he died in 1868, Marilla became a very wealthy widow. In the late 1870s, Marilla Ricker became increasingly involved in the women's suffrage movement. She was inspired by the speeches and writings of prominent suffrage advocates, such as Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, and was determined to do her part to help secure the right to vote for women. In 1870, she was the first woman in New Hampshire to attempt to vote. She handed in a ballot at the polls in Dover's Ward 3 that year, but was denied by the city clerk. For the remainder of her life, she tried to convince the legislature and the people of New Hampshire that women deserved the right to vote. To demonstrate that women deserve the same rights as men, she paid her taxes in Dover in protest every year. Over the next several decades, Marilla Ricker became a tireless advocate for women's rights. She traveled extensively, giving speeches and participating in protests, and worked tirelessly to raise awareness about the issue. Despite much opposition, she persisted in her efforts and became one of the most well-known and respected women's rights activists of her time. In 1890, Ricker was the first woman to apply for admission to the New Hampshire Bar, opening the door to the bar for other women. The following year, in 1891, she was admitted to the bar of the Supreme Court of the United States. Throughout her career, Marilla Ricker made numerous significant contributions to the women's rights movement. Perhaps most notably, she was a founding member of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, which played a critical role in the fight for women's suffrage. Marilla Ricker was also an influential writer and speaker. She wrote extensively about women's rights and the need for women to have the right to vote, and her speeches were widely read and quoted. Her words inspired countless women to get involved in the suffrage movement, and her tireless advocacy helped to build momentum for the cause. Marilla Ricker continued to be active in the women's rights movement until her death in 1920. She was widely recognized for her contributions to the cause, and her legacy continues to inspire women today. In 2016, a portrait of Marilla Ricker was hung at the New Hampshire State House, following a fundraising campaign by the League of Women Voters of New Hampshire and the New Hampshire Women's Bar Association. 
The portrait honors the life and legacy of a trailblazing woman who dedicated her life to causes of justice, quality, and human rights. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.